Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for June 2016 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month was Dr. Darren Jeffers, whose talk was entitled, Where Have All the Bees Gone? We hope you enjoy. said do I need a microphone as you can understand I'm a foghorn already I definitely don't need it um, so I am a long term ecologist I use archives that include lake sediments tree rings, herbarium and museum specimens to look at the interactions of species, mainly plants and the environments in which they persist um, and a small bit of research that I'll be getting on at the very end of my talk is what gave me the interest in bumblebees so I'm no world expert on bumblebees the bumblebees I looked at were dead when we were in a museum, um, but I'm getting that on at the very end. So this is going to be a broad sweep talk about bumblebees, about the state of species and populations of bumblebees in the British Isles. It's also then going to be looking at uh, conservation issues, the very important role that bees play in pollination of plants. It's also then going to be looking at uh, climate change, and then I'm going to finish up by looking at the small bit of research that I did on museum specimens to see if actually we can learn anything from the past to help us with the future. So, first of all, what is the state of uh, British bumblebees? Well, not particularly good, to be honest. Um, we've actually had three species of bumblebees go extinct since the uh, mid-19th century. As there's no PowerPoint, I brought some pictures along. So first of all, we have the apple bumblebee, Bombus pomerum. This chap went extinct in 1864. Shall I last say last observed in 1864? Um, and the next chap was uh, Bombus Kulumana, so Cullen's bumblebee, and he was last observed in 1941. And the final extinction was uh, the short-haired bumblebee, Bombus subterraneus, and this chap actually was last observed in 1988. But a good bit of uh, conservation news is in fact this species was reintroduced in 2009, and its population seemed to be doing quite well. So a small conservation success to, to start the talk off with. But we've had 24 other extant species of bumblebees in the British Isle. Now, unfortunately, six of those had quite restricted areas, so their distribution has declined quite dramatically over the last few decades. Including this chap, the Moscada bumblebee, the brown banded Carda bumblebee, the Bilberry bumblebee, Broken belted bumblebee, the red shank carder bumblebee, and the large garden bumblebee. 
Now on top of that, two now have very, very restricted distributions. They're only actually found in a couple of places across the country. Um, they're very scarce indeed. So this chap's the Shrilkada Bomba Silvarum. This is only now found on the South Wales coastline, Somerset levels, or probably was up until the floods the year before, um, and Salisbury Plain. Now this one will be the great yellow, um, Bombus disinguendus, is now only found on the Scottish north coast and the islands. So as you can see from three extinctions and the uh, six that are really quite rare and uh, the two that are very scarce, we've actually got a large problem with populations of bumblebees. So not only have we lost species, but also the species that still exist, obviously their distribution has declined quite dramatically. So why, I'm just going to put this context and actually a digress from it, why should we be bothered about extinctions and biodiversity loss? If we consider that 99% of all species of multicellular animal that started to evolve about 650 million years ago have gone extinct, why should we be concerned about the local extinction of a couple of species of bumblebees? Well, what we've actually had in the geological geological record tell us that actually we've had five mass extinction events. The most well known of these being the Cretaceous period when we lost the dinosaurs. Now during each of these mass extinction events, 75% of all species disappeared. Okay? So quite a lot. But what perhaps is a little bit more interesting is that if we look at the loss of species between these mass extinction events, we can get an estimate of the background extinction rate. And what the research shows us is that we have a background extinction rate of between 0.1 and 2, depending on which study you look at, extinctions million species years. Now what this actually means is that for every million species you have, you should have one, if, if, if this value is one, you should have one extinction per year. Now on Earth, we currently know that we have somewhere between approximately 1.2 and 1.5 million species that have actually been observed and catalogued. And obviously, there's a quite discrepancy in that amount because cataloging systems aren't completely accurate. But potentially, there could be anywhere between maybe 8 and 100 million species. So basically, there could be up to 90 million species or more that have never been identified and could go extinct before they are actually identified. But this is, this is what you should remember. If we look at the rate of current extinctions, and over the last 550 or so years, we've had 650 known extinctions. But that's for the 1.2 to 1.5 million species we know we have. If we extrapolate that and suggest that maybe we have 10 million species, probably maybe somewhere 5,000, 6,000, maybe 10,000 species have got extinct, many before we even know about. Now, if we put this on a trajectory of frequency and magnitude of extinctions, we put extinctions up here, and down here, what is actually going to happen is that we're actually going to end up with a six mass extinction event when we lose more than 75% of all the species on Earth. Currently, we aren't in the, in the midst of it. Some people argue we are. But the actual amount of the extinctions is just obviously clearly aren't 75% of 1.2 to 1.5 million. But definitely we're at the heel, I would suggest, the heel of a potential mass extinction event. Now if we continue on the same trajectory of losing species, potentially bumblebees, then this is actually what's going to happen. So why of all these species of bumblebees in Britain have gone extinct? Well, the main reason, without a doubt, is in fact the intensification of agriculture. So starting really in Britain, 1939, all remember those very kind Germans, started to send out wolf packs of submarines to sink um, the convoys in the North Atlantic, and Britain was on the, the, the verge of starvation. The British government said, we've basically got to stop this, we've got to try and become as self-sufficient as possible in food production. So all of the available land, all of those old wildflower, hay meadows, all the land that before had been considered to be non-productive was actually turned over to the production of crops. 
Now this continued through the war, and this continued through the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. So what we started to lose was lots of wildflower meadows. I very much suspect actually this was planted, because there seems to be too many plants, uh, flowers for their own good. But we started to lose this kind of foraging habitat that the bumblebees relied on. Now, bumblebees rely on two things that they can get from the flowers that they forage on. First of all, they're reliant on the nectar, and they need the nectar, that's their energy source, that's the sugar, but also they need the pollen. The pollen that they collect is absolutely essential for the larval stage of the life cycle of bumblebees. Without it, the larvae will not develop. So this is why they forage on the wildflowers, such as from that wildflower meadow. So without a doubt, the main reason that we've had extinctions, the main reason that we've had the contraction of species distributions um, to the point that some have become very rare is because of the intensification of agriculture. Now, to put that into context, of the 100 most foraged plants that bumblebees prefer in the British Isles, we've had a 75% reduction in the distribution and abundance of those flowers. So that really puts it into some perspective, the fact is that these bumblebees no longer have the essential nutrients in the nectar and pollen they require to get the next generation going. So really, that is a major concern. Now, not just for the bumblebee, but we've looked at, in particular, the honeybee, a lot of research has been carried out to suggest that herbicides and pesticides have been a major cause of the loss. Now, for honeybees, quite definitely, a lot of research was done on the last couple of years to look at the honeybee collapse, in particular in America, and they've come to the conclusion that potentially a really nasty herbicide, neonicotinoids, um, that's now been banned uh, in Europe for a short period of time, actually had some role in the, in the honeybee collapse. But there is no substantial evidence to suggest that it's the same for the loss of the bumblebees. The bumblebees' losses have been occurring over a much longer duration than that. That isn't to say that herbicides and pesticides haven't had an effect on bumblebees, because they definitely have. There's a number of uh, research papers out that suggest that when bumblebees are actually exposed to herbicides and pesticides, it can really affect their behaviour. It can affect the plants that they go to forage on, it can affect how long they forage on plants, and therefore how much nectar and how much pollen they actually consume, and therefore also take back to the nest. So there is definitely potentially a small role, but not a major role, to be said that these uh, chemicals could, could be affecting bumblebee populations. Now the other thing is the introduction of pathogens and parasites. Again, a lot of research has been done for the honeybee, especially about the virodestructor mite, um, that can devastate colonies. But again, even though we see bumblebees often with lots of mites, and it definitely seems to slow down their flight pattern, and therefore how long they can forage for, it doesn't seem to be a major driving cause of the loss of bumblebees in the British Isles that we've seen over especially the last several decades. So why should we, not just from the point of view that obviously trying to sustain bumblebees is very important so we don't end up with a six mass extinction, but what other reasons should we be concerned about for the loss of bumblebees? Well, it's a very, very important role that they play in pollination. Now, no PowerPoint presentation. My kids helped me out with the... Uh... So, as I said, you all know, bumblebees, along with other insects, honeybees, etc., perform an essential ecosystem service. So they're responsible for transporting, um, I would say by chance, rather than actually but, uh, a driven purpose, they transport the, 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 the pollen grain that contains the male sperm, the gamete, the uh, male genetic material, from the male reproductive part, so from the end of the anthers, over to the female ovulator, uh, at the bottom of the stigma, um, to the female productive part, so that we can end up with seed set and, and fertilised fruit. Now, the bumblebee is doing this because of the rewards. As I said, when it goes to a, a flower, it collects the nectar and also collects the pollen. So our bumblebee has been over to this flower. It has collected um, its pollen. It's got a pollen basket. We'll see the, the yellow basket that they have on the hind leg. And this is the pollen that it's going to take back to, to the nest to feed for the larval stage. But also, completely by chance, it gets lots of pollen grain stuck to it. Now, if anybody has ever looked at a bumblebee hair under a microscope, each individual hair looks like this. It looks like a, in many ways, a multi-headed harpoon. 
Now these kind of spikes are absolutely ideal to get pollen grades up to. So if you look at a bumblebee that's just freshly foraged, as well as the pollen basket, actually has lots and lots of pollen stuck, stuck to these hairs. So what happens when it goes from one flower to the next, these pollen grains, or some of them, get attached to the stigma part of, the, of, the, uh, of another flower, and therefore they're able to come down the stigma and obviously fertilise the, um, the seed or, or the fruit. So this is the absolutely essential role that bumblebees and other insects play. Um, now, to put this into context, British Isles has about 350,000 species of angiosperms, the flowering plants. The bumblebee and other insects perform this essential service and it is absolutely essential for about 250,000 of those. So, you can see if we have the loss of bumblebees or the loss of other insects, then also potentially we have the loss of uh, flowers. So, if we really decided on a worst case scenario, and we look at a positive feedback loop, what do we have? Less bees, less plants. Less plants, less bees, less bees, less plants. To the point that do you have any bees and do you have any plants? This, this is a real distinct possibility that could happen if we not obviously just bumblebees, because there's all the research out there that suggests that other pollinators will take up, fill their niche, if you like, um, if they disappear. But this is potentially what could happen um, if, we, if we lose them. So it's very important for angiosperms, for wildflowers, but also very important for us. Because as humans, we actually rely on, just on food that we consume, 75% of all food that we consume is reliant on some way, those crops are reliant on bumblebees and other insects for pollination. Now 35% of all well crops, agricultural crops, are reliant on insects or other animals for pollination services. Now there is um, estimates and valuations that this is worth up to $200 billion a year, okay? The pollination services that they provide. Now you can see how important it is. I was just reading an article before I came here in The Economist and there was an article uh, about how, how we can move the green revolution forward that's kind of stalled over the last few decades. How are we gonna um, improve yields on crops? And one of the things was looking at the almond growers in California just alone, these almond growers, the, the amount they add to the GDP is $11 billion a year. Well, as we all know, basically the honeybees, okay, one of the biggest problems, the loss of the honeybees, has been for the almond growers. So just the impact of the loss of one pollinator, you can see the dramatic effects it can have, not just for wildflower species, but also for um, agricultural crops that we rely on. So what can we do? What can we do to stop the losses? Well, as I said, we've had a little bit of success. The short-haired bumblebee has been reintroduced. That's very good, and actually it's abundance um, and uh, geographical range is actually increasing slightly, so that's a very good thing. But what can we do? Well, first of all, what we really need to do is to change our agricultural practices, okay? So what we need to do is persuade farmers, whether that's just by asking them, hey, excuse me, will you lay, set aside a field for wildflowers, or actually induce some kind of financial incentive for them to either plant more wildflower meadows, leave fields fallow for longer, to plant strips along the side of the fields of wildflower plants that the bumblebees can use for either forage or for nesting, to reinstate hedgerows and even um, dry stone walling that adds a lot of um, niches that the bumblebees can feed for nests. So this is very important. So this is almost, we would, as, as consumers, would have to accept the fact that maybe we'd have to pay more for our goods. So in fact, just like the organic kind of trademark or free trade trademark, there would have to be something that maybe said, you know, bumblebee helper, buy this carrot or whatever it is. Um, but that, that really needs to happen. Now, everybody else can play their part. If we look at the city council and county council of Oxford and Oxfordshire, they actually have quite a good policy that they don't mow their edges of the grass on the side of the roads until mid-June, late June, that definitely provides not necessarily habitat for nesting, but a lot of forage. So this, this is something that can also be very helpful. The other thing we can all do as gardeners, everybody has a garden at home, including me, has a postage stamp-sized garden. We can all plant flowers um, that are rich in nectar and rich in pollen, and we can also um, provide habitat for nest sites. In fact, a recent study indicated that 
gardens, in fact, provide six times as many per hectare, I think it was. I don't know if it has a garden a hectare to measure. That would be rather large, especially not in Oxford. Um, but six times as many um, niche, niches, habitats, for bumblebees to use as nest sites. Could be an overturned brick, it could be a hole in the wall, etc., etc. So we could all play our part in the conservation effort to, to try and get the distribution of these um, really great creatures you know, to, to increase. So that's what we can all do to help. Now, unfortunately, and this isn't unfortunately, this is what I was called, there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room. Okay, now this 800 pound gorilla is the hot topic and has been the hot topic for a number of years now. It's climate change. So we can do a huge amount for the conservation effort, but is climate change going to put a spanner in the works? Well, quite possibly yes. If we think that since the Industrial Revolution, the last 200 years or so, we've had an increase in greenhouse gases about 270 to 400 parts per million. In fact, this is the first year on record. Um, we've been about 400 on and off for a couple of years, but this is the first year actually it's been above 400 all year, so we really have passed the threshold. Now with that, we'll see amongst other things, it's brought an increase in ambient air temperature of about 1 degree C. Now, Studies indicate many things already with these changes, not changes in the future, I'll get on to that in a minute. But um, we've already seen changes in phenology of plants. So we've seen that in Britain alone, we've seen that wildflowers are flowering between five days and two weeks early. Could this end up with a potential mismatch? When, when the queens first come out of hibernation, and obviously they're, they're literally starving and they need nectar, they need uh, pollen then to start their nest. Are these resources going to be available for them if, if there's a mismatch between timing, between the, the first flowers that come out and the first bumblebees that emerge? Secondly, we've also seen changes in um, the number of flowers that are produced um, just with these two changes. Um, so plants are producing, in many cases, more flowers. Okay, Their plants are growing bigger. Um, and also the nitrogen content of plants is potentially changing as well. So all these things potentially could have an effect on the forage that bumblebees rely on. Now, if that's just today, if we look at a couple of scenarios, depending on if we look at the IPCC report, the scenarios of what's going to happen by the end of the century, then a, a middle case scenario is that we're going to increase to about 500, 560 parts per million of atmospheric CO2, and hit an increase of about 2 degrees C. Worst case scenario is that we almost get 1,000 parts per million and we also go above 4 degrees C. So what would happen in this case if we already had changes to plant phenology and also basically their chemical structure and therefore the forest for bumblebees, what is going to happen when we see this? Now there isn't a great deal of research at the moment to indicate what, what the extent of the changes are going to be. Well, an in interesting little bit of research that recently came out, I believe it was published in Biology Letters, looking at herbarium specimens. They took herbarium specimens of one wildflower, this was in America, um, and they had about a 200-year time series for this particular flower. And they analysed the pollen from the flower, and they analysed it for its nitrogen content, so basically to, to, to look at its protein content, and also the, the fat content, the lipids and the carbohydrates. And they noticed that through time, since the Industrial Revolution, the quantity of the proteins had actually declined. Now this could be very, very problematic for the bumblebees. As I said, the bumblebees are reliant on the protein um, in the pollen um, for the larval stage of the life cycle. If the protein content is going down, this, is, this could clearly be a major problem. Um, in fact, this is why on the way here, fortunately it didn't rain, I stopped and picked a, a couple of very common forage flowers um, that you see on the verge all the time. We, we have uh, red clover, so tri Trifolium potensi, and we have white clover, Trifolium repens. Now, the interesting thing about these, these flowers in particular, and why they're such an important forage source for the bumblebee, is their nitrogen content, okay, and therefore their protein content. Now, 
studies indicate that these types of plants from the Fabaceae family have the highest protein contents of any wildflowers that the bumblebees in Britain forage on. The protein content of these of the pollen can exceed 40%. Okay? So this kind of pollen is absolutely ideal for the larval growth stage of the life cycle of the bumblebee. Whereas if we start to go down a cascade of protein contents of pollen, say to the um, oxide daisy, somewhere in the 20%, all the way down to something like um, Cephytum officinale, so the comfrey that we see covered, uh, covering our allotments, that's only 16 or 17% protein content. So when we talk about the kind of plants that we should plant in our garden and even doing wild stripping, we should not just look at the fact that they actually attract the bumblebees, because they attract, you know, it's the flowers, it's the colour, it's the scent of the flower, but we should also be thinking about the protein content of the pollen. Now, interestingly, potentially some studies indicate that not only the, the bumblebees attracted um, to the flowers by the colour and the scent of the flower, they're actually attracted by the smell of the pollen. To understand that there's a volatile organic compound on the pollen kit, this kind of a yellowy, sticky substance that surrounds a pollen grain that aids stopping desiccation and therefore damage to, to the male reproductive parts, this is actually something that may attract the, the, the bumblebee um, to, to a particular flower, other than just the colour uh, and scent of the flower itself. So as I said, potentially this really is the gorilla in the room. We do not exactly know what is going to happen to the plants that the bumblebees foraged on. The study that was conducted in America actually conducted another similar study using herbarium specimens from the herbarium here at Oxford. And I used a very different process. I used something called Berea Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. And it also suggested, or no, not definite, suggested that over the 150-year time series I had, that the protein content, lipid and carbohydrate content of the pollen grains, and I used comfrey, so the Cephytum officinale, had also changed. So definitely there is change happening because of climate change. But it's not just change to the plants, is it? We've seen, not just for uh, bumblebees, but other insects, in particular butterflies, where a lot of research has been conducted, that climate change is starting to affect their distributions. That we're starting to see them move further north as temperatures are starting to decrease in the south of England. And therefore, over time, we should also potentially expect, especially the ones that have a narrow distribution already, to keep on moving potentially further northwards to track changes in temperature um, as, as climate change really starts to bite during the middle towards the end of the century. Now, just to finish up, I want to go back to a little bit of research that actually got me interested in bumblebees. And um, it's this, this fellow here, so Bombus Pomerum, the apple bumblebee. Um, so I was given a good bit of advice when I finished my PhD DPhil here in Oxford a couple of years ago by the person who was my external examiner, who I really didn't like at the time, gave me too many corrections by far. Um, but he said, if you aren't one of the fortunate people to fall into a postdoc or get a lectureship straight away, he said, you've got to keep on publish or perish, otherwise you will not end up with a lectureship anywhere down the line. So he said, do research that costs you no money at all. So at the time, I said, I had no money. I thought, what research can I do? So I don't know how exactly I struck on the idea, but the idea was that I could look at extinct species of bumblebees, and it just so happens that the Natural History Museum here has a really large collection of them. So I went along to the Natural History Museum, and I said, do you have any extinct bumblebees? And they said, yeah, lots and lots. I said, any from British Isles? And they said, actually, two specimens that we have, two species. One's Bombus pomerum, and one's uh, Bombus culumanus. And we, in fact, only have the only three specimens of Bombus pomerum anywhere in Britain that are left. So I said, could I have a look at those? And they went, that's fine, you certainly can. So that's what I did, and that's what this little bit of research um, came out of. So you'll have to excuse my drawing. specimens of the apple bumblebee the natural history museum has here so the apple bumblebee that went extinct was last observed in 1864 was only observed by three people in two different sites 
in Deal and in Dover in Kent. So clearly when this species existed in Britain, and it still exists on the continent today, but even its distribution on the continent is being quite squeezed, especially in Scandinavia. Um, it was first collected by a chap called John Curtis in 1832. He was an entomologist. He collected a number of mouse specimens about which we have no idea what ever happened to them. Now, somebody else, the son of Frederick Smith, another entomologist, collected the only female um, in 1857, and Frederick Smith himself collected three males, of which two still exist, in 1864. Now, these have been sitting in the Natural History Museum in Oxford since about that time. Now, unfortunately, the Natural History Museum in Oxford has a bit of a quirk. When it collects its bumblebees, um, if they have a lovely big pollen basket on their back leg that contains potentially hundreds of thousands of pollen grains that can be identified, they take it off and throw it in the bin. Because their bumblebees need to be neat and tidy in the little glass cabinet. Um, so, obviously, from a researcher's point of view, this is kind of catastrophic. Because there was potentially a huge amount of information in that, in, in that little pollen basket. But it's gone for good, so, oh well. So what I had to do with these three remaining specimens is look at them under a stereo microscope, see if I could identify any individual pollen grains. If you remember earlier, I said about the harpoon-shaped kind of hairs. If there were any remaining after 150 years. And in fact, out of the three bumblebees, there was 90 pollen grains approximately. About 45 of those couldn't be identified, they were just too degraded, and the other 45 I could identify. Now, from that, I was able to identify the pollen grains came from 12 different genus of wildflowers, in fact, I was able to identify three species level. But what it shows, the importance of it, is that basically when Bombus pollen was present in the British Isles, it was a generalist feeder, because it was basically quite a broad sweep of wildflowers that it was feeding from. So, on top of that, the interesting thing was, about a year beforehand, two botanists, even though they want to remain anonymous, so that, that their name just says anonymous in, in, in the little brochure they put out, hiked along here, along the chalk hills and um, shingle beaches, and they recorded every plant they could see. And there's really quite a good overlap between their record and some of the species that I was able to identify. So it proves that you know, potentially that was a good source of being able to identify the foraging behaviour of Bombus pomerum. Now, before this, nobody knew what the bumblebee, Bombus pomerum, foraged on in Britain. Nobody had ever seen it forage. So this is the only record anywhere that we can ever have, and only once, um, of its foraging behaviour. But what I also want to do with this research is potentially maybe suggest a hypothesis as why it went extinct. So year beforehand, a chap called Simmons started to um, collect all of the meteorological data from amateur meteorologists across Britain and actually put it together and publish it in a book that's very fortunate for us. And interestingly, in 1864, there was a severe drought across Britain. And some of the comments suggest from these natural um, um, meteorologists that um, basically the landscape was brown, basically all the wildflowers had wilted, they uh, produced hardly any flowers at all, and therefore there would have been very little, if any, forage, so for nectar and pollen um, for the bumblebees. In fact, the, the drought was so severe that people actually said that they saw trees that had wilted, you know, deep-rooted trees, so it really was quite a drought. So even though, you know, clearly it's not conclusive, but potentially because of its rarity, in fact, there are hardly any of them, and maybe such a severe drought that coincides with the last time we observed, maybe you could suggest a hypothesis that maybe an extreme climatic event was related um, to their extinction. So can we learn anything from the past, from this long, long record, to put forward to the future for the conservation effort? Yes, potentially, and no. Um, clearly, we can see we have, at the moment, two species of bumblebee in British Isles that are very rare, either confined to the south and south Wales or to North Scotland and the islands. Clearly, rarity, automatically, you've got a much greater chance of extinction. You know, that's an obvious, but this record definitely tells us that. But also, with climate change, one of the things that's expected from climate change, and we've seen it over the last few years in Britain, if we just think last year of the floods in Cumbria, and also Somerset levels, is that we're actually expecting lots more extreme climatic events. So therefore, in the future, not necessarily flood, um, but if it becomes heat waves, um, will this actually affect any of the populations in British Isles that now currently have restricted distribution? 
So on that point, I'd like to finish up. I hope that this short talk has given you a broad overview of the current state um, of British bumblebees and the research is ongoing, and to show you that we can all play our part in trying to increase their distribution. So thank you for your time. surface than even bumblebees. So, for example, we, we've had a big blue thumb Ceanothus flowering in our garden for the last month that's been covered in bees, and we definitely see that there's probably more honeybees um, on that than there is bumblebees. So, and lots of studies indicate that in fact the loss of bumblebees wouldn't potentially be catastrophic for the pollination service, where potentially the loss of honeybees um, and other solitary bees in total could, could be a, a much greater concern. So, the main difference as well, other than being completely different species, is that the um, honeybee colony keeps on going. So, okay, won't necessarily die out at the end of the winter. Whereas the life cycle of a bumblebee is that at the end of the, um, end of the autumn, there will just be one who's the new queen left, um, who has the eggs stored in her, um, and that's it, the rest of the nest dies off. So basically when spring comes round again, basically that queen emerges and then on the hunt for forage for nectar and pollen, to start the next nest. So that, that really, the, you know, one keeps on going, one doesn't. One lives in a hive and obviously has much larger colonies. These bumblebee colonies can be really quite small in comparison to honeybee colonies as well. So if the bumblebee dies out, it could be replaced by honeybee? Well, it, it, we, we could consider it to be a keystone species, that if it, it's wiped out, it'd have serious e ecosystem service consequences. There is a huge amount of research to suggest that if it did disappear, whether it would be catastrophic or not. But considering bumblebees are in such a large number, um, it would definitely affect some plant species, yes. They, 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 wouldn't, um, they wouldn't have the same seed set and fertilised seeds and the same fruit set um, because, because the bumblebees aren't doing their pollination. Um, that, that would definitely happen, yes. So maybe some other insects such as honeybees could feel that niche, but whether they feel it to the total degree or not, nobody knows. That's all right. Um, is that um, what happens between the um, end of a mass extinction and where it happens next, when the species build up? It's like Armageddon, like nothing. I mean, not obviously not all the species completely die out. No, no. Okay, so yeah. As I said, 99% of all species, multicellular species, have ever existed and gone extinct. But that has been offset by evolution and speciation, so other species are evolved, evolved. But that evolution has taken place over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Now the problem is, is that the rate, potentially, of our extinctions is going to be much more rapid. Those past mass extinction events occurred in periods of anything between two and about eight million years. If we can go at the rate we're going, ours will happen a lot quicker than that. And therefore, there won't be enough time for speciation to happen on such a large scale. And what will happen, we'll just be ended up with quite a small genetic gene pool. And from that gene pool, there won't be enough genetic material for lots and lots of species to evolve. So we could also all potentially end up with just a few species, a few fiannes, a few genus, rather than the, you know, the multitude that we have now. So it's all to do with time, that this is just happening too quickly for nature to play, play, its, play its part. And it would be very nice waiting, in the bit where you're waiting for the species to... Yeah, to, to species, yeah. And the problem is as well, I've got to remember, is that the, the, not just for the bumblebee, but the main cause of biodiversity loss globally is habitat loss. Now, it's suggested that climate change may overtake that, but at the moment it has been, for at least the last 50 years, habitat loss, you think, say, like the loss of the Amazon forest, or, or the forests of Southeast Asia. So, is there anywhere for these species actually to inhabit anyway? So. Do you think that the 
Yes. And do we know what's affecting it more? Uh, potentially changes in could be nitrogen availability. But um, no, the only it, this is the first study. It's, it's only out a couple of months ago. I think it was in biology letters. Um, it was done on one species of variant uh, species of plants. I can't remember what kind it was. And um, basically, it showed that over 200 years there was a decline, definitely in the protein content. But, but no, nobody's actually suggested unless it is related to nitrogen availability. Um, the small study I did was only over a few weeks and, and used something that probably isn't truly representative, but FTIR, but it definitely showed that there was some change um, when, when you look at the spectra of, of the protein content as well. But no, nothing's gone beyond that yet to suggest, other than potentially nitrogen, why, why, it's, why it's changed, yeah. But, but obviously, you know, it could be really quite terrible. Yeah, it kills you, doesn't it? It loses habitat and you lose uh, and protein. It, indeed, yeah. yeah. It, it, because bumblebees only really need it for the larval stage. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, it would be absolutely catastrophic. But obviously, not all bumblebees are foraging on clovers that have 40% yeah. protein. Some are probably just foraging on you know, things like the oxide daisy and the dandelion or else that have 20 percent And they still produce nests and we still get a life cycle. So, if we've lost one or two percent since the Industrial Revolution, is it particularly catastrophic? No. If because of changes in the nitrogen cycle um, and potentially the CO2, so we have fertilisation effects and the plants grow quicker and they grow more flowers, but they grow more pollen but with less protein, then that could clearly be a big problem, yeah. But time, time will tell. More research, huge amount more research. Yeah, so what role do you think the agricultural industry has played in this period of beehives? Do things like pesticides or genetically modified plants or plants? Do you think it's like contributed to the experience? Of the, of the bumblebee? Yeah. There, there isn't any research evidence to suggest that the bumblebee has been affected to the same degree as the honeybee. The honeybee, clearly, I think, even though they're still not 100% sure what's comes to collapse in North America, they're starting to side on the fact that it's pesticides that are probably potentially the, the main culprit. Whereas in the British Isles, um, we, we haven't seen that for bumblebees. There have been some um, studies conducted, and as I said, it's been noted that it alters the behaviour of the bumblebees and what plants they tend to forage on, how long they tend to stay on each flower, but they've still ended up with viable nests and next generations afterwards. So again, that's something else that needs a longer perspective, potentially you know, five or ten years to see what could be, could be the effect of that. How many generations of a bumblebee do you get to know here? And there's one, one other bumblebee. One. She lays her eggs and nurtures them by herself. Yeah, well, basically, obviously, the workers she provides, and obviously then her daughter clones, um, and it's one of the daughter clones that becomes the next queen. So it's, it's one generation cycle in one year. So just one. So the, the, one of the, one of the, the clones, the, the daughters that survives, will then be the, the next queen, when she comes out of hibernation in potentially March and April. So the rest of the colony will all die off. Is there any genetic variation in Sorry? Is there any gen genetic variation in that? What, in, in between, say, the, the, the Queen and the next? Yeah. I'm not actually sure whether, um, I don't know, actually, whether, whether there is or there isn't. Um, no. When you talk about Reintroduced what six, six, nearly seven years ago now, um, and it's only actually been extinct for from British Isles for nearly 20 years. Um, and not only has it, it's the population increased where they've released it, I believe also its distribution has changed slightly. But the places they reintroduced it were like nature reserves and things like that, that had probably a broad sweep of wildflowers. Um, so, and, and that type of bumblebee isn't a specialist, it's a generalist. So it was quite happy really to feed on, on, on anything. Um, so yeah, that, that seems to be quite successful at the moment. So. How do you actually reintroduce something that's extinct? Because okay. well, the bumblebee is extinct. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, obviously, because these are local extinctions. These, you know, these three bumblebees were only went extinct in the British Isles. I believe they reintroduced um, Bombus subterraneus from New Zealand. You can, yes. So what they would have done is, is quarantine for a long while and made sure that basically there's no parasites, pathogens, etc., on these bumblebees from another country, um, and then re reintroduce them back, back to the UK. Um, so so that, that, that does happen, yeah. You talked about, um, you talked about uh, agriculture, talking about incentivizing farmers to yes. and stuff like that. Do you need to provide a financial incentive? Surely the kind of continued production yields of the crops would be enough from what the bumblebees already provide. Yeah, but as the bumblebee, as I said, the bumblebees may be essential pollinators, but others for most farm crops will come in and fill that niche. So the farmer doesn't necessarily have maybe a lot a lot to gain from that. But actually there's a study ongoing at the moment looking in Oxfordshire and Oxfordshire farms about the different things they can do. So for example, doing the strips along the farm fields to see if actually, with bumblebees, it actually improves their, it improves their crop yield. Um, and clearly, we don't have to offer a financial incentive to the farmers if just by doing that, they gain one or two percentage points on the amount of crop they grow and the quality of the crop. It's, it's gonna be a no-brainer. What you've got to remember, if they, they plant a field strip, obviously they lose you know, maybe a hectare or so, whatever it is from a farm field, but they'll go all the way around the field. So there's got to be some financial incentive for them actually to, to want to keep on doing that or any other you know, kind of method that would help the bumblebee to survive in, on, the, on the farms. And then a sort of follow-up question around sure. um, kind of synthetic pollination. If anyone knows, if anyone researching in terms of replicating what bees do, that's kind of synthetic. Well, actually, interestingly, some crops are. People go around with a little brush. Uh, I think tomatoes in the greenhouse is one example. Um, some countries actually employ somebody to go around and go from one flower to the next in a tomato greenhouse to, to pollinate. Um, another one that could be quite successfully done like that is strawberries. Um, strawberries are self-pollinating, so the fact is you've only got to go from one part, you've got to pick the pollen up and stick it on the other part of the same flower. Um, so whilst bumblebees have been shown that they can increase the quality of the fruit set and the amount that fruit sets, for some crops, especially if they're higher value, you could get away with other other methods, yes, potentially. There's been an increase in the quarantine of rapeseed oil over the past few decades. Are those flowers suitable for bumblebee to survive? Yes, um, but there is a big problem with monoculture crop here, um, is that it only gives basically one source and one type of uh, pollen and one type of nectar. And a lot of these agricultural crops don't have the same protein levels within the pollen. So therefore, maybe they're not as beneficial um, to, to the bumblebees or to other insects as, as a um, selection of plants that have different nutrient levels and different, different qualities and quantities of pollen and nectar. So yes, obviously they do feed on, on, on crops. You know, some of these you know, we're completely like apple. We wouldn't have any apples if it wasn't for bumblebees and other insects pollinating them. But some some agricultural crops aren't so reliant on, on them for pollination. But so how how else do, do they pollinate? Well, lots of plants can be wind pollinated. For example, wheat. Wheat is wind pollinated. It doesn't doesn't require doesn't require anything. So yes, wind wind is a um, you, lots and lots of trees, for example. Um, so not endless stones, but lots, lots and lots of trees are, are wind pollinated as well. So they don't, they don't require um, any animal activity on them at all. Uh, when, when was it on geological scale that the first pollinators had formed, and who were they? Okay, uh, we think it's a couple of hundred million years ago. Um, what type it is, I don't know, but it is about that length of time. So I suppose the question to ask is, what came first, um, the chicken or the egg? Um, was it the plants or was it the insects? Um, you know, to end up with angiosperms that required pollination by insects. I think there's lots of papers out there on that, and I think the debate is still out which which came which came first. But I definitely think that um, if you look at the anatomy of the bumblebee, especially its hairs and the way it forages. It's going to the flowers for its reward, okay? Because the flowers offering the pollen, and especially the nectar. 
And it's by chance, because of the construction of its hairs, that it collects up these pollen grains and then deposits them on another flower. But is it a miracle? How did, how did evolution design a hair on a bumblebee to be like that rather than just a straight hair that would still have some kind of electrostatic attraction, but one that's like a harpoon that basically gets every single pollen grain that it touches and then they get brushed off on because of the sticky substance on the... Um, in fact, we quickly look at um, a pollen grain, an individual pollen grain. So this could be any pollen grain, um, 10 microns to 50 microns in size. So microscopic, you, you, you can't see it. Um, as I said earlier, the, the pollen kit, like this oily, sticky substance, if you've ever had pollen grains and you've rubbed them in your hands, get like yellowy, sticky stuff on you. That isn't actually individual pollen grains um, that's coming off, it's the pollen kit. Now this potentially has a smell to it, as I said, volatile organic compounds, that potentially attracts the bumblebees to the pollen grains. So has the pollen grain, the flowers evolved to attract the bumblebees, but the pollen grains potentially also evolved to attract the bumblebees. But when and how, we don't know. Now the rest of the pollen grain, the exine, enzyme, and cytoplasm, are really there just to protect the generative nucleus, the male genetic material within the pollen grain, to stop it drying out and also mechanical damage. But the um, one thing I could have added to the, when we did the flowers is that what happens when this is transferred from one flower to the next, this tube nucleus actually grows out of the pollen grain through the entire exine, and that generative nucleus actually travels down with the genetic material, and that is what goes and fertilizes the ovulation and the bottom of the flower. But, so the, the color, the smell, the touch, the sticky, all of them, just individual pollen grains, could have evolved just to be picked up by a bumblebee hair and other insects. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, are there any products going on in the British Isles in terms of like bee beatings for bee sanctuaries in the British Isles? And how successful would they be? Because they're very isolated environments, I imagine. Okay, so what was the first part of that question? Though? Yeah, so are there any projects in the British Isles similar to bee beatings for bee sanctuaries? Right. And to look at what? To pretty much like conserve bees and have a population. Yeah, well, there's lots of nature reserves. Um, that one, one of the big tasks is to... Is, is just to, to preserve bumblebees. For example, off the, the coast of Essex, there's Orford Nest, that's a big shingle island that was actually a test centre for weapons during the, uh, during the uh, Cold War. And um, that shingle seems to provide excellent habitat for some species of bumblebee. So that really, the reason that's protected the nature reserve, so one of the main reasons is just, is just for that purpose. So that is happening, yes, across the British Isles. There's a number of organisations out there, bumblebee conservation organisations, that buy up plots of land um, and replant wildflower meadows and also just give advice to farmers and etc. what they can do to try and encourage bumblebees and other insects back onto their back onto their land. Yeah, so it's, it's quite quite big. There's a bit of a love affair in the British Isles with the bumblebee. I would say for me personally it's the quintessential sound and you know sight of summer. Um, sitting in the garden with cold beer in hand you know, seeing and hearing the bumblebees. So yeah, there's a lot of passion for it. Are there any final questions? If not, please join me in giving Darren a huge round of applause for an excellent talk and also yourselves for excellent questions and making insight on what it is. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.